Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Father, for the blessings of this day and the gift of Sabbath and the gift of worship. Thank you, Father, that you draw near in moments like these and you speak to our hearts. And so we're trusting, Father, that you have something significant to say to us. So may your words be spoken, may your words be heard today. May you speak to us at a very, very profound level. Uh, may it lead to uh, transforma- transformation of our lives. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, the group of kids I grew up with and enjoyed having tons of fun with when I was, when I was coming along in the neighborhood in which I lived, one of the things we enjoyed doing was um, making one another as dizzy as possible. Dizzy, Right? So it may start, it may, you know, it may be as simple as taking someone and, and blindfolding them and then, you know, making them spin around a ton. Um, oh, <laughs> thank you. Making them spin around a ton and, uh, you know, and then taking the blindfold off and then watching them try to walk or run and they'd stumble around. We just got the biggest kick out of that, right? Or we'd spin you around. If you were in the swing, you know how you can kind of just get the swing going around, 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 and then let it go and it twirl you around and you get a little dizzy from that. Um, If merry-go-rounds were a favorite, because on the merry-go-round, we would take unsuspecting victims, people we meet at the playground, get them on the merry-go-round, and we would just spin that thing as hard as we could, right? And if you passed out or puked, that was even better. We just, yes, you know, that was awesome stuff, great theater. Um, or later on, I remember we learned this thing called Dizzy Izzy, and that's why they brought me these little items out. Remember Dizzy Izzy? Did you guys ever do Dizzy Izzy? That's where you put your head on, the, on a baseball bat, usually a bigger actual real baseball bat, and you just start running around, you start going around and around and around and around, and uh, eventually, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty messed up, you're pretty dizzy, and you try to run a certain distance, try to make it to one of your friends, and usually you're kind of running sideways like this, right? Eventually you fall over, and it's... And we thought those types of things were quite hysterical. If we could get you dizzy and disoriented and just kind of watch you deal with that reality, we had a ball watching that play out. But as you live life a bit, as you do life a bit, you realize that there are particular events in our lives that throw us for a loop, that create disorientation, that make us dizzy for real. Some of you have walked through that reality. Some of you have been through things that just mess you up. And you're kind of left wondering which way is up, which way is down, which way is left, which way is right. And you're trying to get your bearings and you simply can't. Sometimes life is disorienting. And probably one of the most significant, one of the most significant things that creates disorientation, that creates dizziness, is when we experience Loss, death, when someone close to us, when someone we love, someone we care about, someone we have a history with, whether it be a spouse or a sibling, someone very, very meaningful to us, someone who matters to us is no longer here when they're gone, when we experience the, the, the dizzying and disorienting impact of a death, it messes us up. I mean, you, you, we've all, if you've lived long enough, you know someone who 
close to you who you've had to try and figure out how to get your bearings back after you've suffered such a deep and impacting loss and you just don't know what to do. So the passage that we're looking at, the story, the narrative that we're um, checking out today in John chapter 21 is that sort of narrative. We, we pick up the story of Jesus and his disciples who have suffered and in, we pick up on the disciples who have lost their Savior. They've lost Jesus. They've suffered a disorienting and dizzying loss. Death has caused a disequilibrium in their lives. And they're struggling with that reality. They're trying to figure out, what are we su- supposed to do? And yeah, they're kind of aware of the fact that Jesus said, yeah, I'll die and I'll come back. But, but just watching the cruel nature of how he got to the cross and he was buried and put in the tomb, and it's just really messed them up. And, and, and how he got there and the, the trial and the, the beatings and the crown of thorns and the crucifixion is all just sort of left them quite disoriented. That's the story. Add to that. Add to that the reality of the fact that they're dealing with their own doubts and failures. Their own sense of, of the fact that when when he was going through all this and Jesus needed us the most and, and we promised, we told him we would be there for him, that we couldn't be there. That when the chips were all down, we weren't there for him. A sense of kind of personal disappointment, a sense of failure that lingered with him, particularly with Peter. And as we get into the story, you'll see how the story, how Peter sort of rises to the top and his story becomes very, very profound. But, but Peter and all of the disciples had to be dealing with not only the, the sense of grief and loss of someone that they love and they care about, they spent lots of time with, they've seen him do so many things, but they're dealing with their own sense of failure. You know, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the people in the Bible were actually real people. (laughs) They become these caricatures sometimes. We just kind of go, well, they were, you know, they're like special people. And they they knew how to deal with this stuff. The the disciples just understood, you know, Jesus comes and he he is going to preach and he's going to teach. He's going to die. He's going to come back in a few days and we'll get on with the mission and we'll be fine. We miss the fact that as disorienting and as dizzying as the loss that you have suffered in your life, the same applies to these guys. They were messed up. They were messed up. Because death, death is really disorienting. A very, very dear friend of mine suffered such a, an, an incredible loss recently. Um, Pastor Mike Tucker, some of you know him and uh, follow him. He's a speaker director for Faith for Today. He and his wife, Gail, um, they're the ones that brought me into pastoral ministry, uh, really. They, I started with them, was with them for years. Uh, we've maintained uh, just a very close re- relationship. They're mentors and very, very precious friends. And last year, about a year ago, uh, Gail, Mike's wife, passed away from pancreatic cancer. And so this entire past year since her, her death, we've been sort of going along with Mike through this grieving process and the disorientation that death brings to one's life. And so he's been writing a lot of posts on Facebook as part of the grieving process. And if you go to Facebook or if you're friends with him on Facebook, you've been following along. And at the end of it, I think he'll have a great book on on grief. But 
I picked this out of one of Mike's, uh, one of his posts on Facebook, and it just sort of goes to the idea that how, how disorienting and dizzying death is. He says this, he says, my experience over these past, past, past months has been monumentally painful. I have cried more than I thought humanly possible as I thought about Gail daily and at times hourly. Listen to this part. Confusion, inability to focus, sadness, somatic disturbances, loss of appetite, followed by comfort eating, we can all relate to that, mood swings, and more and more have all been a part of my daily existence. I've been the textbook griever, he says. Sounds a little bit like disorientation. Sometimes it probably drifts down into disillusionment. Sometimes it just, it just sort of throws you off. You aren't sure where to go, what to do, what to say. The disciples are dealing with their own disorientation, the reality of the death of someone they love, their own grief, the reality of their own doubt. Will he really come back like he said he would? Their own personal failings and so forth. Now, again, these are real people. Add to that the awkwardness of a resurrection. Yeah. As if that's not just a little strange. Yeah, they, all along they've listened to Jesus talk about the reality of the fact that he would die and he would come back. But until it happens, the story that we're looking at is one of, uh, of several appearances that Jesus would make post-resurrection. So it's not like they're unfamiliar with seeing Jesus post-resurrection, it's just still a very new reality for them to deal with. On top of the, dealing with the grief of death, they're now having to deal with the reality of this God, this Jesus who resurrected and came back. It'd almost been better if he stayed dead because we could deal with that and just kind of move on, but now you're back. And all the scandal and all the, all the spin that the government had put on it and all the, all the stuff, all the drama surrounding Jesus' death and these guys had to be a bit of a mess. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's too far for me to say that they suffer from sort of a post-resurrection stress disorder, right? That's just the reality of it. This thing that they're going through is real. It's stressful. It's tough. Jesus has been reappearing around these different places and and they're having to hear about it and deal with it. And, and even as we get to John chapter 21, they, are, they, they were told to go to Galilee, go to this place. And, and they were sort of anticipating that Jesus would come there eventually. But it's an interesting reality for them. It's new. It's different. It's, it's tough. Look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, verse 17 talks a little bit about this. Gives us a little hint at, to, uh, to the uh, disorientation that was going on with them. So Matthew 28, 17, this is another one of those post-resurrection appearances by Jesus that's recorded by Matthew. But listen to this. He says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. All right, we can get that. Jesus said he would come back. And yeah, those are the super spiritual people, by the way. They see, they see Jesus resurrection yeah but then notice what it says but some doubted some doubted don't be thrown off by that word doubted a better word a more accurate translation would actually be hesitated they hesitated they hesitated because when you see 
When you see someone who's come back from the grave, I mean, you got to process that for a minute, all right? It's, it's, it wasn't that they doubted intellectually, intellectually. They just needed to take a step back with a certain sort of practical, let's process this, right? Because this is not normal. This is not normal. And so that's, that's sort of what's going on with this you know, with these, with these disciples, there's the disorientation of the death. There's the grieving process of watching the cruel and awful, unfair punishment and death and dying of, of this one who you love. And now you've got to deal with the reality of the, this very same person coming back. It's going to be a little bit awkward, a little bit weird. So here... Here's, here's, here's the thing for you. The closest I've ever come to experiencing this is, uh, is a story that kind of hits close to home here. Um, many of you know uh, Pastor Bill, Bill Crofton, youth director here, well-loved and known here in Florida. And uh, you know his son, Matthew Crofton. And you know a number of years ago that Matthew went through a very difficult medical experience that just about cost him his life. So I was, and this was out in Salt Lake City where this, everything began to play out. I was the senior pastor out there of a church, um, one of the bigger churches there in the Salt Lake City Valley. Uh, and I got the call, hey, there's someone here or in the hospital there in Salt Lake City um, that's an Adventist, and his dad's a pastor, and he's well-loved here in the Florida, in central, uh, central Florida, and would you go visit him? Would you go? And uh, I think Pastor Mark actually uh, made the connection because we were friends uh, then, and so sure enough, I went up there, and uh, to, hear, to hear Pastor Bill tell the story, he says I showed up in t-shirts, shorts, and flip-flops. That's probably true. Um, I don't recall that, <laughs> um, but I walked in, and as a pastor, you've walk, I've walked into tons of hospital rooms, and you sort of sum up the situation real quick. As I looked at that hospital bed, and I, locked, and I saw Matt, and I saw everything that was plugged into him, I, I, didn't, see, I didn't see him coming out of this one. You really do. You kind of, you know, because I got the call, and they were, ta- they were saying, hey, it's, you know, it's not looking good. It's pretty grave. Bring the anointing oil because, you know, this is, this is pretty serious. And sure enough, when I walked into the room, I was like, yeah, yeah, this, we better start talking about arrangements here, right? It's pretty bad. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that the day came that Matthew recovered, that he walked out of that hospital in Salt Lake City and he is alive and well today and has children and has a life and that's, that's a miracle, man. That's pretty, that's pretty powerful to, to see that. Now, here's the thing with it. I hadn't seen him. I did the visits, but I never saw him recover. I never saw him. So my last image, the last thing that I know about him is he's in that bed and I'm, you know, I'm not thinking he's going to make it. I did hear that he had made it, so that was interesting. Um, but it wasn't until I came here to be a pastor that I'm at the Olive Garden. And he comes up to me. And I could kind of figure out a little bit that that, that was him. I knew, you know, picture, I had seen pictures and so forth. He came up to me and shook my hand and said, yes, I know who you are. This is weird. <laughs> Dude, you are back from the dead. <laughs> this is a... This is a miracle. This is a resurrection. This is, this is, this is wow. And there's a certain sort of 
of awe that you have. There's a certain sort of a, of a reverence and a, and a just, you just kind of step back and you go, wow. And I can't help but think that the, that the disciples had a bit of that reality going on with them, that as much as they suffered from this post-resurrection stress disorder, they were also somewhat in awe of the reality of the fact, and it kind of threw them off, that this one who was dead is now alive. Whoa. Whoa. But like anyone, like all of us, we have to figure out a way to cope with all that's going on around us, right? Death, grief, resurrection. We've got to deal with all of that. And so for the disciples, one of the things that they would do is that they, they decided that, hey, let's go fishing. Peter gets the big idea, let's go fishing. Hey, you've got to cope somehow, right? You've got to kind of get... Try to make some sense of what you're walking through. You kind of got to get your bearings about you. And sometimes if you return to a familiar place or you return to a familiar routine, maybe you can just sort of cope and walk through whatever it is that you're going through. So they go fishing. They take off out in the boat and they do their thing. And um, to add insult to injury, these expert fishermen, these ones who know how to fish, don't catch anything. I don't catch anything. So now, not only is it the grief, not only is it the awkwardness of the resurrection, now you add on top of that failure at something you know you're good at. Failure. There's a failure that they had with Jesus, but now there's just the practical failure. They can't even provide food. They can't even get fish that they need. So, John chapter 21, verses 4 through 6, reads like this. Check this out. Notice what happens. They're going to fish all night because that was fairly customary. We're going to fish all night. We'll have fresh fish to, se- to sell for the next day. They were unsuccessful, but this is what happens. Early in the morning, Jesus, here's that Jesus again. Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. We almost caught one, though, right? Every fish story is like, man, I had one. I got a bite. (laughs) But they hadn't. They hadn't caught anything. You ever experience, you ever ever just needed a win, right? You ever had such a series of setbacks and disappointments and failures that you're just kind of going through life and kind of, Lord, just give me a win, just, just even let my sports team win. That would be enough for me, God. <laughs> right? Let the Cleveland Browns win one. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Cleveland Brown fans. Right? I mean, if, if things are going so bad, you, you know, life is, is just kind of going that way. I just need to win. These guys can't even get a win at fishing. They're struggling, man. Notice verse 6. Jesus begins to offer them some help on this fishing thing. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Jesus shows up and they find success in their attempt to cope with the realities of what's going on. Jesus allows them to get the win. Jesus takes them from failure to success. Hang on to that. John chapter 21 and verse 7, we keep going in the story. Notice this. Notice how Peter responds to 
finding out that this is in fact his Jesus. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. (laughs) Now here's the thing. As I think about Peter and where he's at, he's experiencing the same emotions, the same reality of disorientation and dizziness that the other disciples are, but perhaps it's compounded for him because he was the one that most enthusiastically said, no, I won't deny you. I will, I, I will stand with you. Whatever they do to you, they're going to have to do to me. I won't leave you. And yet it was... It was Peter, Jesus even predicted it, who would deny his Lord. And so things are particularly profoundly painful for Peter. He recognizes the depth of his failure. It's very real to him, man. And some of us can identify with that. Some of us know failure at a very, very deep level. Some of us have, have just messed up royally. And it's the type of failure that sticks with you. You just kind of remember it. It just lingers in your mind. You, know, you can have, a lot of you are very successful too. You got tons of success under your belt. You got many, many more years of success than you have of that one failure you had. But you know what? You remember when you screwed up, right? <laughs> you remember the failure. And, and perhaps Peter couldn't see Jesus, John saw Jesus, perhaps Peter couldn't see Jesus because it was early morning, the light, the sun wasn't quite up, maybe there was a little bit of a fog or a haze there, but I tend to think that maybe Peter couldn't see Jesus because of the fog of his own failure, and he sort of struggled to acknowledge and see Jesus. Because sometimes in our failure, we, have, we experience shame and we don't really want to see Jesus. We don't want to be around Jesus people. We don't want to go to church where they talk about Jesus. We just want to sort of avoid Jesus altogether. We don't, definitely don't want to look at Jesus. But because of our failure, we don't often see him. How many of you eat fish? Eat fish? You like fish? Yeah, I, like, I eat fish. How many of you don't eat fish? You don't eat fish? No, no fish? How many of you don't eat fish because of the smell? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, my wife hates fish because she can't handle the smell, right? If I eat fish, I go out and get fish, I come back, there are no kisses for me, right? Because she's like, yeah, fish breath. <laughs> Nothing happening, right? The other thing about our failure is it sort of lingers like a stench. It smells us up. It's it's stinky. Peter was a fisherman. He was out on that boat. It was probably hot. He was working. He had taken off his outer garment. He was sweaty. He was nasty. uh, You know, it was a bunch of guys out on a boat. The nets, they didn't catch anything, but they had previously, I'm sure, had some fish in them. There's water. There's a bit of a stench. And and to me, there's there's, there's a... there's an imagery there that, that there's a lot that's going on with Peter in particular. There's a lot going on with all the disciples, but P- Peter in particular, he can't shake his failure. He can't shake his, the shame of his mistake. And it, it's foul and it stinks. It is, not, it is not pretty. The fishiness of his faith is being revealed, right? 
But then something happens. And I think there's something to this too. Peter, Peter once he recognizes that, once, he, once he's told that that's Jesus over there, he jumps in the water. <laughs> he jumps in the water. And I imagine that there's, for, for a lot of us, there's a part of us that says, if I could just, if I could just get clean... If I could just, and he puts on his outer garment, he sort, of, he sort of covers himself up, puts this thing on, he jumps into the water, begins to make his way to the shore. And that to me speaks to kind of where we are a lot of times. If I could sort of put on my best, get myself cleaned up, get washed up before I meet with Jesus, I'll be more acceptable. I can get rid of the stench of my sin. I can get rid of the foulness of my failure. And I'll be... I'll be more presentable when I get to Jesus. Or maybe, maybe we should look at it a different way. Maybe we should look at it a different way. The same, the same Jesus who, who would give them the miraculous catch of fish is maybe he's the same Jesus that could perform a miracle in your life and in mine. Maybe he's the same Jesus that as you get in the water and you make your way towards Jesus, he cleanses you on the way. So it's not really so much about what you're doing, it's all about what Jesus is doing in you. It's not about you trying to make yourself more presentable, it's really about Jesus calling you from that place of failure to a different place. And he begins to wash away the shame, he begins to, he begins to cleanse you all along the way. That's really the heart of the gospel, isn't it? That there's a God who, who, who calls out and, and you, when you recognize his voice and you recognize him and you begin to make your way towards him, that there's this work that goes on inside of us that he begins to do this work. It's not so much about you as much as you're attempting to do it. He is doing all this stuff. The beauty of it is I mentioned this in second service last week, but the beauty of it is we serve a God who is an amazing entertainer. <laughs> and I don't mean that like he's talented and he does songs and, and he does tricks for us. No, no. He's an amazing entertainer in the sense that he welcomes people to be with him and to host them. He welcomes people and he welcomes the opportunity to give people what they need. He, often, he welcomes people who, who cannot do for themselves. So if you, if you go on down and you look at the story a little bit more, John chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, notice what Jesus is doing, right? He sa- it says this, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. So here's this Jesus, who in the failings of his disciples, both before the cross, after the cross, and now at fishing, they couldn't get a win there either. Jesus gives them success, he gives them the fish, Jesus calls them to his side, and he begins to serve them. Wow. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with with the people who fail. Jesus cooks breakfast for failures, stinky failures. 
Jesus cooks breakfast for those who walk in shame and, and their failings are forever at the forefront of their minds. This Jesus who, who um, welcomes unsuccessful people to serve them and to give them what they've been unable to provide for themselves. Jesus says, I know you failed, but I am a success. I welcome you to come and be with me and experience my success. Who does that? I mean, if we're, if we're building a team, if we're trying to create a, an ideal group, we don't ask the smelly failures to come join our team, do we? No, no, no. We look for those who are winners. We look for those who have it together. We look for those who are clearly talented and can be successful. We don't go to the failures. Why do we want to mess with people who have a story? Why do we want to deal with people who have a history that's a little sketchy? Why do we want to deal with people who, when they walk by, other people are in little groups whispering about them? But not this Jesus. Because he, he's okay with, with breakfast for the broken. He's okay with serving those who haven't been successful. And the truth of the matter is, this, this is a message for all of us because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as successful as you are and as successful as you have been and as successful as you will be, you still fall into the category of unsuccessful. You're still a failure. But in Jesus, you have incredible success. In Jesus, you are, you are an amazing success. His sufficiency takes the place of your insufficiency. His provision takes the place of your inability to provide for yourself. And so Jesus extends the invitation to all of those who are smelly failures. Come, have breakfast with me. Come and be with me. Come and be by my side. And I will begin to give you a life that you so long to live. Not one that hangs on every failure that you've ever experienced. In fact, those will soon begin to fade to the background. Not one that involves the shame and all of that. So we're going we're gonna to wash you and make you clean. I'm going to give you something new to put on. I'm going I'm to make you, I'm going to take you from being a loser to being one that experiences success. And that's what Peter hears. That's what Peter begins to know and to understand. And I imagine as, he, as all the disciples are gathered there with Jesus, there was something pretty, pretty special about that meal. So much so that it doesn't sound like, if you read the text, it doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of talk around the table. They were just, they were just there. And lo and behold, Jesus called them to his side. He said, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Here's, here's the last thing I'll share. You know that you are accepted. You know that you are restored. You know that you are reconciled when Jesus asks you to join him and to be with him. Because the whole, the whole story ends with Jesus saying, follow me. Remember, he, he goes to Peter, the last part of the chapter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter says, yes, yes, yes. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes, I love you, Jesus. Um, take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, getting, 
he's getting upset, like, yes, yes, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Join my team. I want you, Peter, to be with me, to carry forth what I came to do, to tell other people about the reality of though you have failed, there is a God who welcomes you in your failure. He invites you to success. He invites you to his sufficiency. He, provi- he, he invites you into his provision. Come and be with him. And not only that, he wants you on his team. What kind of God is that who takes unsuccessful people, people who live in failure, and makes them successful, invites them to his team? That is the God that we serve. That is the Jesus that we know. So he just says, follow me. Wherever you are, you can follow Jesus. Whatever shame you live in, whatever failure you keep replaying over in your mind, Jesus says, just come, follow me. Come and experience my success. Come experience my love. Follow me. Father God, I pray that those listening here under the sound of my voice would hear that call. Whatever place they may be in, whatever disorientation, whatever dizziness they may be experiencing right now, Father, I pray that they would just simply hear your voice, and that is to follow. Despite their failures, despite the smelliness of their shame, may they simply hear, follow me. And may we be a church that welcomes anyone who will follow you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.